Yeah, thanks for, thanks for humoring me. Uh, that's one of my favorite songs. I just usually listen to it a lot louder, which is why I say what an awful lot. But if you were alive in the 90s, some of you, some of you were alive in the 90s, then you probably remember that video. Hello, 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 hello. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now. Entertain us, a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, my libido. It's called It Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was written and performed by 24-year-old Kurt Cobain on the album Nevermind. It obviously resonated with an entire generation because they sold 30 million albums since 1991. And overnight, Cobain became a multimillionaire. He had unlimited access to entertainment. He was an entertainer, and he had unlimited access to entertainment. Power, fame, drugs, sex, the lifestyle of Sodom, and maybe Las Vegas. Last week, for some reason, I said that we'd talk about Sodom this week. Remember that in Genesis 14, which you looked at last week, Abram saved Sodom. Although he didn't do a very good job of it because they obviously still needed some saving. Abram received communion, if you remember, from Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. But he refused to enter into a transactional relationship with the king of Sodom. So, how do you feel about Sodom? (laughs) My experience, just mentioning that word strikes terror into the hearts of folks. So they stop reading at this point and change the subject. This morning, I would hope that we would keep reading, that we just keep reading and take a shot at believing the whole Bible, not just part of it. But for now, how do you feel about Sodom? How do you feel about Kurt Cobain? Are you a little jealous of people like Kurt Cobain who can just take whatever they want whenever they want? Do you think Kurt Cobain should be punished? And I forget just why I taste, oh yeah, I guess it makes me smile. I find it hard, it's hard to find, oh well, whatever, never mind. As most of you know, April 5th, 1994, Kurt Cobain put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. So are you jealous of Kurt Cobain? Do you think he should be punished? And if so, what should his punishment be? You know what's weird? I'm 61. That's weird. But I've been a pastor for over 30 years now. And I think I've known more pastors that have killed themselves than drug addicts and and musicians. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now. Entertain us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to preach your word, to be honest with the Bible, to be honest with ourselves, and most of all, well, to be honest with you, Jesus. You're the word, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Amen. In Genesis 13, we read that the men of Sodom were wicked. In Genesis 14, we read that Abram saved Sodom and rescued his nephew Lot, who lived in Sodom. In Genesis 18, this is what we read. And the Lord Yahweh, when it's all in caps like that, it's, it's Yahweh, Uh, When the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abraham, he's named Abraham now, which means father of a multitude, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, this really ought to get our attention. Yahweh, who is one, appears as three, and either all the men are Yahweh, or at least one of them is 
Yahweh. In Romans 9, Paul quotes one of them from Genesis 18, calling him the Word and the promise. So class, <laughs> who is God and a man and the Word and the talking promise? Who, who's that? Yeah, very, very good. You're very smart. Genesis 18, 2 through 15, the men who are Yahweh, or at least one of them is Yahweh, they tell Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son, which is pretty big news at 99 or 100 or whatever it was. In Genesis 18, 16, then we read this. Then the men, right, the, the three men, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way to, to Sodom. So did you get that? The God-man is fixing to go to Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I love that. God is talking to himself out loud. Shall I tell... He's, Shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? What's going down here? So why is God wondering to himself out loud? Well, Sodom is a nation of the earth. God has promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. Abraham's got to wonder, how could God bless all the nations of the earth if he destroys one of the nations of the earth? It's the same question that you ask every time you suffer. How could God love me if he allows me to suffer? How could God destroy me and bless me all at the same time? Verse 17, the Lord Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, but literally, yada, I have known him. And now this is huge. The translators just changed the word to make this reasonable to us, but the word yada appears 947 times in the Old Testament. It's almost always translated no, and never chosen, except here in the ESV. You see, I think the point of the passage is that God knew Abraham. And now Abraham is pregnant with a seed. The promised seed. That Abraham experiences as faithfulness, hope, and love. A new desire growing within him. Verse 19. For I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, Yahweh, by doing righteousness and justice. That's the right. So that the Lord, so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Remember, he said he was going to inherit the universe. That's what Paul says. Anyway, the Lord Yahweh said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether, literally made a complete end, according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, or if nothing, I will know, yada. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord, Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham doesn't doubt that the evil needs to be destroyed. But what about the good in the evil? Every man is dust, but every man contains the breath of God. And isn't that the good. Abraham starts to argue with God or with this God-man, that is Jesus. Many of you were taught that there's this group of people that God will subject to endless torment or he himself will endlessly torture. And, and you started to argue. And people said to you, who are you to argue with God? Well, maybe you're of the seed of Abraham. Verse 24, Abraham says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. That's not like you, God. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it 
far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? And the Lord Yahweh said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The whole place for their sake. He'll save the wicked for the sake of the righteous. You see, God and Abraham know that righteous people can't, like, enjoy heaven if their unrighteous neighbors are suffering in hell. I'll spare the whole place for the sake of 50, says the Lord. Then in verses 27 through 32, Abraham keeps arguing. He argues for 45, and the Lord agrees. Then he argues for 40, and the Lord agrees. Then he argues for 30, and the Lord agrees. Then 20, and the Lord agrees. And then he argues for 10, verse 32. Then he said, O Lord, uh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there, and the Lord agrees. And then Abraham stops. People always wonder, why did Abraham stop at 10? Some speculate that it was because in the Hebrew mind, and you find this in the Old Testament, that 10 was the smallest uh, social unit in the Hebrew mind. So if there weren't 10, it wasn't worth living. I wonder if Abraham lacked faith that God would spare a whole nation just for one righteous man. And yet, even if he had proceeded on to one, we learned from Paul in Romans, didn't we, that there isn't even one. None is righteous. No, not one. Peter, in 2 Peter, calls Lot righteous, but he sure wasn't very righteous. Not a lot righteous. (laughs) Well, Abraham argued with God, and I think God wanted Abraham to argue. That's why he wondered out loud. And then told Abraham what he was fixing to do. Remember that Moses argued with God when God told Moses he'd destroy all of Israel and make a great nation out of him. Exodus 32, 32. Moses said, blot me out of your book. Just blot me out of your book then. In other words, if they're not saved, I don't want to be saved without them. And remember, Paul would have argued with God if there was still an argument to be had. We studied that, remember last year, Romans 9.1. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could wish, said Paul, for one man had already been accursed and one righteous man had already been found. He was numbered among the transgressors, according to Isaiah in chapter 53. But my point is that Abraham pled for Sodom. Like Moses pled for Israel. And the God-man really seemed to be fond of Abraham, Moses, and Paul. As if he has compassion for Sodom and delights in their compassion for Sodom. Maybe he'd like you to have compassion for Sodom. In my experience, religious folks usually don't have compassion for sinners. Sinners like Kurt Cobain. Instead, we're jealous. Verse 32. Yahweh answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So verse 21, we read, I, Yahweh, God-man, will go down to Sodom and see. Verse 33, and the Lord went his way, and he's going to Sodom. So I think we ought to ask a few questions. What is the sin of Sodom? What is the punishment upon Sodom? What is your... Sorry, favorite Monty Python haunts me. What is the sin of Sodom? What is the punishment on Sodom? When did Jesus go to Sodom? So what is the sin of Sodom? I think we've all been trained that the sin of Sodom is sodomy. Trained by hundreds of years of church tradition and the signs of protesters like those from the Westboro Baptist Church. You've probably seen signs like this. Why did God destroy Sodom? Jude 7. And for some reason, this guy thinks Robin Williams is in hell, which is ironic. I appreciate signs like this. God hates signs. (laughs) Reverend uh, Fred Phelps made a career out of harassing homosexuals and even picketing the funerals of those that had died. 
he referred to them as sodomites. We've been taught that the sin of Sodom was sodomy. But sodomy isn't even a biblical word. Sodom is a noun and a place, but there is no biblical verb based upon the noun Sodom. There's a Denver, but there's no Denvery. In the same way, there's no sodomy. When we preached through Romans, my friend Arne and I preached one of my favorite sermons on the topic of homosexuality and judgment. So if you're interested, you can find that sermon on our website. We preached it on October 24th, 2021, using Romans 1, 18 through 2, 3 as our text. But for now, I just want to point out that nowhere does the Bible say that the sin of Sodom was sodomy. Although something like that, or what we mean by that, may have been involved. But the Bible is very clear about the sin of Sodom. And it doesn't seem to only affect a few of us with a certain disposition. It affects all of us of every disposition. And yet, for some reason, most of the church is taught that the sin of Sodom doesn't have anything to do with most of us. It's them, not us. Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, look, this was the guilt, the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Have you ever met anyone that's proud, has an excess of food and prosperous eve, and doesn't aid the poor and needy? Have you ever met anyone that's, that ha- that's haughty or done an abomination? What's an abomination? This is what Jesus says, Luke 16, 15. You are those that justify yourselves before men. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. (laughs) Justifying yourself to exalt yourself. And this is Jude 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire and serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The fire is eternal, but Sodom's not still burning. Sexual immorality is the word, Greek word ekporneu from the word porne, which is always translated prostitute. Ekporneu is to participate in transactional sexual communion rather than the sexual communion that's bound by an unconditional covenant. Ekproneu is attempting to buy and sell love. And God is love. Unnatural desire is a terrible translation in the ESV. In the Greek, it's literally other flesh. Heteros sarkos. Not homosarkos, heteros sarkos. To pursue heteros sarkos is to pursue flesh that doesn't belong to you. The Lord said the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this refers to Christ and the church. The point is that sex outside of marriage is pursuing other flesh, and taking other flesh is an abomination called rape. In the next chapter, the people of Sodom gather around Lot's house and demand, quote, to know the angels or the godmen that are staying with Lot. That's their sin. That's the abomination. They were consumers. They demanded to know. But check this out. God forms a covenant, an unconditional, this is in the last chapter, an unconditional covenant with Abraham and knows Abraham as we just read, and Abraham bears the fruit of righteousness. So God is not into consumption, but communion. He's the creator. And now the sin of Sodom should sound kind of familiar to every one of us, right? Because the snake said to the woman, go ahead and take the fruit of the tree, the tree of knowledge, and exalt yourself. Make yourself in the image of God. 
And what was it that was hanging on the tree? The God-man. We took the fruit, consumed the fruit, and everything died. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now. Entertain us. a mulatto, an albino, my libido. Oh, a mosquito, my libido. A denial, a denial, a denial, a denial. Maybe that's why the church has pinned the sin of Sodom on one group of people. A denial, a denial, a denial. And I forget just why I taste. Oh, yeah, I guess it makes me smile. I find it's hard. It's hard to find. Oh, well, whatever. Never mind. Isn't that fascinating if you've traveled the world a little bit? How we Americans in particular and relative to the rest of the world can actually get whatever we want. And then we discover that we don't really even want what we get. And isn't that the way sin and addiction work? An ever-increasing dissatisfaction empowered by denial that drives one deeper and deeper into the darkness all along, alone. So, so a, an addict, you know this, right, desires a drug and then feels shame for abusing the drug and then desires the drug to escape the shame which only traps the addict deeper and deeper in darkness all alone. The medieval mystic Julian of Norwich wrote, I was shown no harder hell than sin because for a well-natured soul there is no hell but sin. Sin is the sharpest scourge that any chosen soul can be struck with. Bernard Shaw defined hell like, like this. Hell is where you must do what you want to do. C.S. Lewis portrayed hell as a place where you get whatever you want and can no longer want anything you get. And that would mean that Kurt Cobain and the people of Sodom were not really in danger of going to hell. They were already there. So if you're jealous of them, perhaps you're jealous of hell and already trapped in hell. You just won't admit it. A denial, a denial, a denial. You know, the Old Testament word that gets translated as hell is Sheol. It clearly begins here and often extends into the grave. Sheol is the deep, the pit, the abyss. And that's just where Sodom was located. At the very lowest point on the entire face of our planet. The, the, the deepest part of the Great Rift Valley, where the continental plates are literally being wrenched apart and the valley floor is dropping into the depths of the earth. The blood of the Passover lamb would literally run from the temple down the Kidron Valley, past Gehenna and into the abyss, the, the Dead Sea. Sodom was located 1,385 feet below sea level on the southern banks of the Dead Sea, somewhere out on this plain. I took this picture from uh, the ancient Jewish fortress of Masada about 16 years ago. We were there. God is not threatening Sodom with Hades. Sheol, the outer darkness, or what the Old Testament calls hell. He's threatening hell with himself. Genesis 18.33, And the Lord, Yahweh, went his way. And you remember that Abraham, they told Abraham he was going to, to Sodom. And Abraham went to his place. The next verse, the two angels, Malachim, messengers, came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The two angels are two of the three men that Scripture referred to as Yahweh. And so we're obviously supposed to wonder, where's the third man? What happened to that guy? He reasoned with Abraham and went his way, and he said he was going to Sodom. So where's Jesus? When did Jesus go to Sodom? Next sentence. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, listen closely, all the people to the last, man is added there by the translator. You see, it means that not only men, but men, women, and children, all the people of Sodom surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They want to know Yada. They want to know these angelic godmen. Lot went out to the, to the men, the men of Sodom, at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Lot may have been a bit righteous, but not a lot righteous, right? And you know what? His daughters weren't so righteous either. When this is over, you read this when you get home, they get their dad drunk. Why? So that he would know them. (laughs) And then they become pregnant with the Moabites and the Ammonites, Israel's enemies. Do to them as you please, says Lot. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, this fellow Lot came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now that's a bit of projection, isn't it? Because who wants to judge? Who wants to know? Now, they say, we will deal worse with you, Lot, than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the godmen, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. What a picture. Then the men said to Lot, we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord Yahweh and the Lord Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment, but literally iniquity, awon. It's usually translated iniquity, the iniquity of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord Yahweh being merciful to him, like these men's hands are Yahweh's hands, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Zoar means little or significant. So Lot literally took refuge in insignificance from the pride, the sin, the iniquity of Sodom. Then the Lord Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, gopherite, brimstone and fire from the Lord Yahweh out of heaven. So, what was the sin of Sodom? What was the punishment upon Sodom? And when did Jesus go to Sodom? Well, the sin of Sodom was quite literally that they wanted to know these angelic godmen. So is it wrong to want to know someone? Is it wrong to know someone? Well, that depends on why and how you know them, doesn't it? Isn't it fascinating that they wanted to know, and in a way they did come to know, but the knowledge killed them? Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes his messengers, his angels, winds, and his ministers... He makes flames of fire. They wanted to know. And the God man said that he would know. So what was the sin of Sodom? What was the punishment of Sodom? Well, ironically, in a a way, the sin of Sodom, the punishment on Sodom was the same thing. Verse 15, the punishment was literally the iniquity. They wanted to know the good and discovered that they were evil, and it killed them. But the punishment wasn't just that. It was also fire. I hope you read your Bible all the way through, because if you do, you'll discover that not only Sodom gets destroyed by fire, everything gets destroyed by fire. 
In the Revelation, seven angels pour the wrath of God from seven bowls upon the earth, and in the bowls is blood. That's also wine. That's also fire. It's the blood of the Lamb. So what was the sin of Sodom? What was the punishment upon Sodom? And when did Jesus go to Sodom? Where is Jesus in Genesis chapter 19? Psalm 29.7. The voice of the Lord, Yahweh, flashes forth fire. Jeremiah 23.29. Is not my word as fire, declares the Lord, Yahweh? Isaiah 30, verse 33, the breath of the Lord, Yahweh, like a stream of gopherite, sulfur, brimstone, kindles Gehenna. God is love, and God is fire, and God is one. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, the flashes of love are flashes of fire. The very flame of Yahweh, the Shalabet Yah. Maybe Jesus was in the fire. You know, throughout the whole Bible, Jesus literally appears as a pillar of fire, angel of fire, man of fire. Maybe Jesus was in the fire. And maybe Jesus was in the last and the least of these, his brothers. Isn't that where Jesus said that he would be on judgment day? On his throne? that John describes as a cross on his throne and in the last and the least of these, his brethren. We know that Jesus, the promised seed, was in Abraham and Lot was his brother's son and Lot called the people of Sodom his brothers and the promised seed was in Abraham's grandpa Noah and his son Shem and Shem was the brother of Ham, the father of Canaan, that's the Canaanites. If you believe scripture, every man is a brother to the son of God and the son of man. So maybe Jesus was in every man, woman, and child in Sodom. If so, I would just suggest that it wouldn't be so wise to let Sodom or Sodomite become a byword that is an insult in your mouth. An insult, you know, the way it's become an insult in the mouth of people like Fred Phelps and most of the leaders of Christendom. And now this is really utterly bizarre, but most Christians are completely unaware that the story of Sodom doesn't end in Genesis chapter 19. Ezekiel 16, God accuses Jerusalem, his bride, of becoming a porne, a harlot, a person that tempts to have transactional relationships with love. Verse 48, he says, As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, Jerusalem. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous seas, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Samaria, that's the Samaritans, has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Verse 33, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. Now, now some are surprised to find that after God reduces Sodom to dust, he saves Sodom. But God reduces everyone to dust and saves everyone. He made us from dust in the beginning. He clearly says, I make all things new, which means that all things pass through the doors of the new Jerusalem, for on the other side of those doors is a new heaven and a new earth and a new you. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? Your pride, Jerusalem. Well, that's also the sin of Sodom, right? Same sin. 
Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus the Lord says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. In other words, the measure you give is the measure you get. Yeah, you have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting and eternal covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder, Sodom, and your younger, Samaria, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again. At least not in pride, right? Because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. When I atone for you. So what was the sin of Sodom? What was the punishment on Sodom? And when did Jesus go to Sodom? So what was the sin of Sodom? Well, it was the same as the sin of Jerusalem. It was pride. It was taking knowledge to exalt oneself. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. The people of Sodom saw that those godmen, those angels, were a delight to the eyes, and they figured that they'd be good for food, and so they tried to consume them in order to become them. They tried to rape them. The women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. The woman saw the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and, 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 and to be desired to make one wise. The Sadducees and Pharisees saw that Jesus was wise. He's actually wisdom. They saw that he was wise. They wanted to be wise. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to be Jesus. They wanted knowledge of good and evil in which to judge themselves, judge themselves, and judge their neighbor. And so they raped Jesus trying to become Jesus. In Sodom, they used people to exalt themselves. In Jerusalem, we use God to exalt ourselves. I should know. I'm a pastor. The Sodomites were just beginner sinners. <laughs> you have to get religious like Saul of Tarsus to become truly advanced in the sin of Sodom. Revelation eleven seven. Two witnesses, two godmen, like the two angels in Sodom, they're murdered in Jerusalem. Then Revelation eleven eight. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically, literally, it's not symbolically, spiritually. Spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem is not just symbolically called. Sodom. That's a lousy translation. Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom. And spiritually doesn't simply mean symbolically. It means truly, actually, really. The flesh is temporal and the spirit is eternal. Sodom is eternally Jerusalem and Jerusalem is eternally Sodom. So what's the sin of Sodom and Jerusalem? It's taking knowledge to judge others so you can justify yourself. It's letting sodomite or sinner or reprobate or pagan or non-believer or any other label you'd put on another person become a byword in your mouth. The sin of Sodom looks something like this. And now... I hope you realize that Peter Hyatt is standing on very, very, very shaky ground. For if I take pleasure in condemning Fred Phelps, 
oh, I just make myself much worse than Fred Phelps. And so I better have compassion on Fred Phelps just like I would have compassion on any other old sinner in Sodom. Can you imagine the inner hell with which Fred Phelps lived day in and and day out? But to be honest, frankly, I don't find it too hard to have mercy on Fred Phelps because I'm not in the least bit jealous of Fred Phelps. Just as I don't find it hard to have mercy on Kurt Cobain because I was never jealous of Kurt Cobain or wanted to be Kurt Cobain. But a few days ago, a friend of mine sent me a video of Lonnie Frisbee, who I understand is highlighted in the recent movie, Jesus Revolution, that is getting great reviews, and I think you really ought to go see. This is Lonnie Frisbee with Chuck Smith and Catherine Coleman on the Catherine Coleman show in the early 70s, I Believe in Miracles. One of the young men, Catherine, who has been so used of God is Lonnie Frisbee, and I wonder if Lonnie could just share with us some now. Well, the people tell me that I'm trying to look like Jesus. I can't think of anybody else I'd rather look like. (laughs) Jesus, he changed my life. And so he's pulled us up. He's given us the message. We're going forth and proclaiming the good news. Jesus is coming back. Repent and turn to the Lord and save yourselves from this evil generation because he comes to judge the quick and the dead. How has he changed your life, Lonnie? Well, the Lord says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away and behold, all things become new. He's changed me all around. Really? Inside out. Through and through. (laughs) And the things you once loved, you have no desire for at all, right? Just went right out. And he says, I'll take your stony heart of unbelief and I'll put a new heart within you and place my spirit within you too. And so everything changes. He says, I'll become a well of living water gushing forth from within you. And that well of living water gets out everything else. And the new birth experience is real. Sure is. It's the most real thing in the world. He's really, really real. (laughs) How many of you know what Lonnie's talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I watched that and thought, I'm jealous. I never wanted to be a rock star like uh, Kurt Cobain, but I wanted to be a Christian superstar like Lonnie Frisbee, the guys at Calvary Chapel. I used to know a lot of them because 30 years ago we were considering becoming one of them. And then I thought, I wonder why I've never heard of Lonnie Frisbee. I googled Lonnie Frisbee and discovered that God used Lonnie Frisbee in some really wonderful and amazing ways, and yet Lonnie Frisbee struggled with secret thoughts, lived a secret life that he felt he just could not share in church. I cannot judge Lonnie Frisbee's sexuality or anybody's sexuality. But I know that Lonnie Frisbee felt that he couldn't share that he was gay. And I know he died of AIDS in 1993. When I read that, part of me thought maybe I'm better than Lonnie Frisbee. That part of me is absolute evil and will be destroyed by the consuming fire, the eternal fire. But another part of me just broke for Lonnie Frisbee, but not because he was gay. All sorts of wonderful people are are gay, whatever we mean by that. Not because he was gay, but because of what he'd been taught about the character of God and the judgment of God. I realized that for Lonnie Frisbee, well, that must have just been hell. 
He'd been taught, and so I imagined that he would teach that God would save some and then send others to endless torment and eternal fire. But I wonder if he knew that the eternal fire is relentless love, and it burns away evil and liberates the good, but it takes a lifetime of honesty. But you see, no one ever needs to hide in hell all alone. We're all in this together. And you see, that part of me is not consumed by eternal fire because that part of me is the eternal fire. An addict desires a drug and then feels shame for abusing the drug and then desires the drug to escape the shame which only traps the addict deeper and deeper and deeper in darkness all alone. A Pharisee desires to judge others in order to justify himself. That's his drug. Then feels condemned for his condemnation which only tempts him to more condemnation and traps that Pharisee deeper and deeper in darkness all alone. And so I guess... I'm not preaching this message to make you feel bad. That wasn't my goal. I'm preaching this message so that maybe you would have compassion for the sinners in Sodom. And maybe you would have compassion for the sinners in Jerusalem. And since Jerusalem is Sodom, would you have compassion for those like Lonnie and me and you and everyone you know who live in both places at once. The sin of Sodom is condemning others to save yourself. But the grace of God is suffering condemnation in order to save all. The sin of Sodom is taking knowledge to justify yourself. The punishment upon Sodom is the revelation of grace, which is the atonement of all. And when did Jesus go to Sodom? Well, this is a clip of Jesus in Sodom. St. Paul taught us that this is the edge of time and eternity. So when did Jesus go to Sodom? Right now. He takes bread and he breaks it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And do it in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup saying this is the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the judgment of God. We must all die with him. And we must all rise with him. And until we do, we're stuck in hell. But when we do, we'll have compassion on all. So would you just pray with me, okay? So you make these words your words if you feel that you can. So I'm not asking you to lie, but I'll just pause and silently in your heart, you, you make these words your words if, if you feel that you can. Lord God, I confess that I'm a sodomite. And by that, I mean that I I go around judging others in order to justify myself. But you have justified me with your judgment. So I pray that I would bleed only mercy, the judgment of love.
invite the fire scripture says that judgment begins with the household of God it's so weird that we would call it down on the rest of the world and not ourselves so Lord God I invite you to pour out the whole lake (laughs) pour your fire on us Lord Jesus because now we see that you are good. Amen. You know, the fire did fall on Jerusalem. Within one generation, it fell on Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And Jerusalem was reduced to dust. And yet, 50 years, or 50 days after Jesus died, it fell on the disciples. Do you remember that? fell on the disciples in the upper room and they are the new Jerusalem. And when it fell on them, do you remember what happened? They shared everything in common. There were no more transactional relationships, only joy. And yet that was just a foretaste because when we get to the book of Revelation, we encounter the harlot And lo and behold, we kind of are the harlot. But then God pours out the bowls. And by the end of the book, the harlot has become uh, the bride. He comes to judge the quick and the dead, Lonnie said. And I think that's true. The fire destroys the old Jerusalem and it liberates the new. So may you never run from the fire. May you always run into the fire. In the name of Jesus. And now I just want to say, this message for some, it felt heavy, kind of, right? But you see, it's incredibly liberating. All I'm saying is, in the name of Jesus, believe the gospel. Amen.